Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. Two years and almost 100 JSIPs ago, I interviewed Claudia Van Nimwegen. Claudia is a mental health advocate, teacher and theatre artist. We discussed so many things on her podcast, including the trauma she had gone through, bullying in school, her autism diagnosis and much more. I wanted to check back in with Claudia because she has gone through a lot of changes in her life, a lot of growth, a lot of reflections, including one change which you might notice if you listen to her first episode is that she has changed her pronouns from they, them back to she, her. In this episode, we discuss why she decided to make that change and why she found the non-binary label no longer helpful for her mental health recovery. We also talk about how she's got back in touch with her faith and found a new community of churchgoers that she's tapped into and found friendship, creativity and all sorts of other great stuff. She also does the photography and lighting for the church and has found it a really big additional support pillar in her life. We also talk about a diagnosis of something she got called fibromyalgia. Now, this is a chronic pain condition that sits within the arthritis umbrella, and she received this diagnosis in March 2020. We talk about how she's got on top of it and managed it alongside her mental health, and it's definitely brought a lot of challenges for her. Grief is also something Claudia has experienced in through losing both her granddad and grandmother during COVID-19 and Claudia has had to step up to support other members of her family through that grief. We finish by talking about her move to come off medication and stop her two-year sobriety for a healthy reason, how she's began to explore her own sexuality more and how she's become even more self-aware of her autism diagnosis and the positives it can bring as well as the challenges. This was one of my favourite ever episodes. I'm so proud of Claudia. She is such an amazing person and I'm so glad I could get her back on the podcast to talk about this and all of the stuff she's gone through since we chatted two years ago. So this is how part two of my check-in with Claudia Van Nimwegen went. Claudia, welcome back to the Just Checking Pod, mate. How are you? I was saying in our off-air chat that despite it being almost two years since we last recorded, it doesn't doesn't feel that long. Does it feel that long to you? I think it, it feels that long in terms of not seeing each other in person, mm. but like chatting over Insta and kind of email and stuff, it does feel like a short amount of time. Like mm. It feels like you can just pick up from yesterday. Yeah, exactly. I think we've got that friendship where when we met in... How long did we... What was, when was that Mad Millennials event? 2019? I think it was 2018. Was it? It was a year before. Yeah. I, all I know is it was the the day I did the first event gig. So whenever that was in January, that was it. Okay. So a debut. Yeah, that was a, a debut. debut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've got so much to catch up on, and I'm so pleased with how far you've come with this mental health journey and your recovery and everything that you've gone on to do since we last chatted. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show, mate? I am ready. <laughs> 
I wanted to keep this pod very simple, mate. So all we're going to do is talk about your continued mental health journey. So firstly, as a slight change to the question I usually ask and what you got asked in the first pod, who's the Claudia we meet now and what's happened since we chatted? So the Claudia now, I think the Claudia now is someone who knows a bit more about what she's doing in Mm -hmm. life and has more of a direction, but also has more of a community around her. So I'm able to be around more people, you know, COVID has now, hopefully, you know, we're all kind of coming out of this pandemic, so we're able to see each other more. And I think that's really helped me grow in confidence and get back out there instead Mm. of being so closed off. The first thing I wanted to discuss with you, Claudia, and it's something that I had no knowledge about, it's something I still don't really have much knowledge about, and, and it's only because you talked to me about that I've started researching it, is a diagnosis you got in March 2020 for something called fibromyalgia. So tell the listeners what it is, how it affects you physically, and then also how it affects your mental health. So fibromyalgia is a physical and neurological condition which is in the arthritis kind of category it's a chronic pain condition with no official diagnostic tools so it's so you know like how certain things are diagnosed by certain kind of descriptive factors so symptoms Yeah, yeah symptoms yeah so this is kind of a combination of lots of different things which create this new diagnosis So it's like taking some of the symptoms of arthritis, some of the symptoms of mental health, some of the symptoms of other chronic pain conditions, such as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, Mm -hmm. and putting them all kind of together in one kind of bracket. So when did you know something was wrong? So I'd always kind of struggled with my physical health in terms of having pains and sensations, and partly that came into my autism diagnosis, because I thought maybe this is just my way of kind of blocking out pain, that I didn't really kind of feel it in the same ways as other people. So like a subconscious bodily reaction or something like that? Yeah, so I um, kind of pressure points all across my body and I think a lot of it was to do with stress and increased points of stress created these kind of physical... Well, I noticed the physicality kind of more in terms of my body and I ignored it for a while, thought, you know, it was just oh, just me being silly just it's just you know overthinking like a, it yeah yeah, yeah. You, you know I'm, I'm a natural overthinker don't become a teacher if you're an overthinker <laughs> <laughs> and so I kind of ignored it but then it really really kind of got to me where I would get up out of bed and I wouldn't be able to get up, up out of bed I would have to kind of force myself and even though I was functioning you know I was going out on runs I was traveling I was doing all the stereotypical normal day-to-day functionings in life. My whole body was in constant flare-ups. So I had these pressure points all across my body and I decided to go and get, hopefully, diagnosis. Mm. And then when you were researching it, what did you find out? Was it something genetic in you that's caused you to develop it? Was it something that you were doing which made you vulnerable to it? Or was it something else entirely? So I had already had a diagnosis of hypermobility. So I was already very kind of hypermobile. So I thought, oh, maybe it was just an extension of that. But then I really kind of looked into it, considering the population of people who actually had the diagnosis. And what is that? So 18 to 64 women. Okay. Mainly. Men can get it as well. Young children can get it. But that kind of category, it becomes more prevalent in your early 20s to late kind of 30s, before you kind of hit that 45 kind of bracket. Mm Mm-hmm. So that kind of made sense for me in terms of, oh, okay, maybe I fit into this category with this. 
but also I don't really like the diagnostic procedure, which mm. kind of happen. Did it feel quite limiting to you? Yeah. So my diagnosis was very, very severe. They said so. It's based on like a scale system in terms of right. how many things you can do, which then limits it. Because if you're having a brilliant day, it's great. But if you're having a terrible day, so it's quite you know, extreme ends then, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I never had the extreme kind of low ends. I was always on the very kind of high functioning ends of mm-hmm. the fibro which created almost like a block when it came to diagnosis because people don't really believe it unless they see it, you know. Because I wouldn't know it, not talking to you for five minutes. So it's an invisible condition, but then it's visible in some ways if you, you know, some people wear splints, some people are in wheelchairs. I had a health scare with that, being told when I got the diagnosis that I could be in a wheelchair at 30. So I've got five years for that. But I'm trying to delay it as much as as much as I can by keeping active but there's no official cure for it there's management strategies but it's a lifelong condition which mm. will progressively get worse over time mm. and you know just speaking there about managing it what have you done to alleviate the pain do you take medication for it what have they told you that you can do to put off the high-end spectrum of severity of it so this is a real challenge for me they said to take it easy <laughs> right <laughs> Which, if anyone knows, that's an irony there. Yeah. yeah, Which, if anyone knows me, I have to keep busy. I have to keep doing things. But they said, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Running isn't the best thing for you. Which, you know, I used to really, really enjoy my running with Rent Talk Run and just going on runs anyway. But it became a thing where that was actually putting too much pressure on me. But now I get out every day. I walk. You can take medication for it, like over-the-counter paracetamol, ibuprofen, things like that. It's more of a stopgap. Yeah, yeah, it's more of like a treat the symptoms, not the, not cause. the actual cause. Yeah. yeah, because nobody really knows where the cause comes from. There's no kind of is that frustrating point. It is. It is because with a lot of kind of other things, you can kind of link it back to trauma or kind of genetic things or just kind of biological kind of things. things which factors. yeah, things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but with this. They're more about helping you to understand the symptoms and treating them. But I was meant to be referred to a pain management team, but that never happened. And I didn't bother following up because it would have been exactly the same as what I experienced before with kind of physio and things, which would be go and do Tai Chi or go and do swimming. Right. There wouldn't have been any kind of support which they could offer. I had to kind Mm. of take it on myself. And also it's expensive. Before we move on, you said to me that the fibromyalgia makes you feel inhuman. What did you mean by that? So I think a lot of my other diagnoses have made me feel inhuman in different ways. But I think with the symptoms of fibromyalgia, I didn't want to be that person who was in pain all the time. So Mm. I used to push through it and I would almost take my psychological, spiritual kind of self out of it and be like, oh, okay, Claudia's struggling with this. I refer in third person quite a lot to myself because of this, I guess. And I think it was almost like I shouldn't be experiencing this. So I'm not going to experience it. This body will experience it. So was it a little bit of like, why me sort of thing? Yeah, yeah. Because there was no complete trigger moment for it to happen for this diagnosis. It was almost like, oh, it had just been this developing thing. Mm, you haven't got clarity. You haven't got closure on something. Yeah. Yeah. So it was almost like a a mystery. And it mm. still is in, in the kind of medical world. If you speak to anyone who works in that area, it's still a very debated topic as to whether or not it is a real 
a real diagnosis because it is pulled from lots of other kind of things. Let's talk about another very stressful time in your life, which was COVID-19 and reflect on it a bit because we chatted during COVID-19 the first time and a lot has happened since that period. So you've completed your teaching degree. Well done. Thank you. And you've enrolled in a master's course. Well done. Thank you. (laughs) And you were getting some work here and there, but you said COVID in particular had a massive impact on me. So unpack that. I think for me being a extrovert anyway, you know, I'm, I'm an introverted extrovert, one of those INTPs <laughs> if we go into that kind of thing, which isn't a full descriptor, but anyway. I think that being such an extrovert and doing all these things, meeting new people, having all those connections, I was still living in London. And then I moved away from London and you know, obviously on the pod I was still living at home during the whole COVID thing. I was doing my teaching degree, so I was face-to-face working with students during that time until it all got shut down. And I think because it was such an overnight thing, there was no gradual progression into things closing. It was almost like a, right, we're hitting the stage and there's no option. Like, I'm not a rule breaker, but I kind of like to err on the side of, if I want to go out, I need to go out for my mental health. I Pushing need to boundaries. meet people. There's no middle ground. Yeah, yeah there's n- th- there is no middle ground. <laughs> So I would be out taking that 15 minutes a day, which you were allowed to go out. I would go out every day for that walk to post a letter. Just sounds like a different world, doesn't it? Just sounds like a completely different world. Yeah, and I think at the time, because I was having to take on a lot anyway, you know, in terms of teaching online whilst training at the same time in the teaching, whilst living at home, whilst having to go around and care for people who were shielding, whilst also doing extra voluntary work and mental health things... I didn't have any time for myself mm. and I think my time for myself was going out and meeting my friends and seeing people and I think because of that extrovertedness I found it really really difficult to be in one room it brought back a lot of trauma who, who, who can mate who can yeah I think it brought back a lot of trauma in terms of being in a mental health hospital as well being yeah. stuck in somewhere and knowing that you can't leave apart from for a 15 minute escorted mm. walk so it was bringing back that bring- same routine yeah yeah, it, yeah it was bringing back a lot of the things which you know i felt like were my fault and in some ways i felt like i was causing covid um Gosh, that's an awful mindset to be in mate yeah so sorry you felt that way um but you know i i stayed as safe as i can got the boosters and all of that mm. and I think everybody has been affected by it in some way, shape or form, whether or not they've gone through grief of losing someone or whether or not they... Admit it or not as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It has been a global pandemic and I think we forget that. Mm. We forget that it's not just us who have been affected. It's everyone trying to push through this together. You know, small businesses, artists, freelancers, the whole world's been just shut down. And I think for me being a creative as well, that was very kind of tough knowing that i mean i do technical kind of artist kind of stuff anyway but everything you can't do that sat at home <laughs> no you can't you have to give someone a hug you have to you <laughs> know you, you have to be around people which mm. being on the screen really doesn't uh, i mean technology is great don't get me wrong i think it's brilliant what we can use it for but there's, there's nothing limit. like yeah, yeah there is such a limit to it mm. also coffee shops were closed <laughs> yeah, yeah that i love that <laughs> which i was very very so sad I know you hated about. that <laughs> yeah during COVID, you also went through a double loss and grief. So you lost both your granddad and your grandma. So it's your dad's parents. And we're not going to talk about those two losses in detail, but just tell me what you feel comfortable talking about here and how you also had to support 
other members of your family like your dad during that process and, and what toll did that take on you? So obviously grief is one of those things which affects people in different ways mm -hmm. and I think I shunned the grief in some ways because I was dealing with you know the trauma of seeing my granddad pass away through this it was a very kind of quick progression mm. and the same with my nan as well very quick progression we gave them the best life that they could in their kind of final moments but it was all through wearing gloves and masks and screens and things it wasn't a typical kind of family makeup in that kind it's of not way. Typical grief. No, so no, it isn't. Through, yeah. It isn't, and I think at the time because I was pushing that out because I didn't want to deal with it, and I wanted to remember those good times and those happy times, as is a natural grief coping strategy. I think for a lot of people, I pushed myself into my work. So I was teaching at film university as like an assistant over in Brighton, two and a half days a week. Whilst doing a five, do the maths here. But five <laughs> Don't day... look at me for maths. <laughs> <laughs> so I was working for two and a half days a week whilst I was doing a five day master's course, whilst having to be at home, whilst also going around caring for my grandparents every day, going around there. That's a lot, doing... mate. Yeah. Whilst I also had all these other conditions happen mm. and having to deal with that, you know, my dad was working as a dementia care support as well at the time and my mum was working in finance and you know things things were still moving forward but it was very much as if I was putting everybody else first because You're an they pilot. yeah they needed the help more than me and I guess did that's they? I think in some ways they did but now I see that I needed the help at that time as well and you all did yeah we, equally we all needed some kind of support but in different ways. Yeah. So for me, I get my support from helping other people. But in order to help other people, you, you can't pour from an empty cup, right? So you went almost too far. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was pretty much doing everything to help everyone else. And then I think also that brought on some of the fibro stress I was going through and some of the symptoms through that. Yeah. yeah. So I think the grief was pushed down. You know, I'm very good at shoving it away in a closet and putting little bits in there at a time until it all comes tumbling out. And then you look at it like... And then Narnia's what there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. It's like, hey, there you go. There it is. But I think I'm in a better place now with it because I think I had to take myself out of the situation mm. in order to kind of reassess it, which then I guess goes back to the inhuman part. So it all kind of interlinks. So you're viewing yourself in third person again? Yeah. 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 I think for me, viewing myself in third person lets me... Not in an arrogant way before we before we start before the listeners assume that you start referring to yourself in the third person all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I can almost take that bird's eye view and see the whole picture mm. instead of seeing those fine details and everything being my fault or this being wrong. You know, I can kind of connect the dots from an outside kind of perspective. One of the things I was taught in therapy as well, you know, take yourself out of a situation. But then I think what I'm practicing is putting myself back into that situation yes. and applying that. You've got to do it at some point. <laughs> yeah. And I think like applying that new knowledge to it and it actually exposing yourself to that, but not all at once. Yeah. You know, doing it gradually. Mm, excellent, mate. Let's fast forward to July 2021 now. Your home environment was starting to become a little bit untenable for yourself and you made the decision to move to London permanently, whereas before you were sort of dripping in and out and coming there and there. So tell me about the Claudia we meet at this point. So I think back in July 2021, it was just towards the end of COVID, I think, in terms of the stage four the lockdowns, lockdowns or yeah. something. Yeah. And 
you know, the world was opening back up again. I was doing my master's course. It was full time, you know. I just finished working as a teaching assistant at film school. I was, in all the positive ways, it was going right. In terms of from the outside, everything was fine, you know. Career, I progression. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was looking to the future, seeing what was around. But at home, I was really, really struggling, I think, because we spent so much time together as a family being stuck. And I will use that word. You know, <laughs> you, you were stuck in some ways. Not so much stuck in terms of well, you were the relationship. You were literally but, yeah, stuck. <laughs> but the res- I was stuck with the responsibility, I think, mm. which a lot of it shouldn't have been passed to me for various reasons. But also, I can understand why things were passed to me to ease a lot of the pressure, be that in work, be that in relationships, be that in friendships even. I had so much responsibility on my shoulders and I wanted to meet up with my friends and see people because for me, obviously, you know, a big part of it is being around people and finding a community of people who I can kind of do life alongside and with mm-hmm. and not just being that person on the other end of the phone. Like, mm. you all right, mate? Yeah. See you in two, five years, whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> sounds like, that sounds like London's diaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it got to that point where I had to reassess where I was and I didn't see a progression point for me living where I was. Mm-hmm. I felt as if London was a place which I needed to be. So I started to just think about how I can get out of here fast. And I did the thing which a lot of people do in my position, log on and join an agency. I'd never been one for earning a lot of money. I don't really care about money. Yes, it helps, but, you know, it's not the main thing in my life. I just needed something to, so that I could get a job, move out, pay the bills and have a little bit left over to see my friends and make a community and be around people. So I think it was end of June, early July, I rang up this London living accommodation thing. It was like a hostel, but it was almost like a co-living place. So week to week living, nice ensuite. It was paying extortionate amount, which you could probably get a, you know, you could get a one bed flat to rent for what I was paying. A very bougie (laughs) hostel. Yes, yes. But, you know, it was somewhere which I knew because it was a week to week living place. I could move around with me being almost like a digital nomad. I don't like to stay in one place for an extended period of time unless that's the perfect place or as close to perfect or, you know, where I feel suitably comfortable with. So I had a job confirmed for September um, at a school because I did my teaching qualifications. So it would have been nice to find somewhere, you know, to get real experience on that hands-on level career-wise, but also be in a place where I could feel more free to express myself and not be burdened by a lot of the things which growing up, you know, almost, again, separating myself in this human kind of way, like, okay, well, this is a different Claudia now, I can actually be the person who I was made to be, but also want to be, and kind of having those choices which were open to me was quite nice. When did Um, that distinction change? I think it changed as soon as I got on the train (laughs) with my suitcase, so I packed one suitcase full of stuff in a backpack, and I moved with that, and I... Yeah, I am a minimalist in terms of... I mean, this flat is very minimalist, but that's yeah, making me piss a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly. And even when I recently just moved, I moved with a suitcase. Wow. One suitcase full of stuff and, you know, a few bags, but not, you know, like, could fit in the boot of a car kind of thing. Mm. So I think it changed as soon as I got onto that train. And then when I walked into London for the first time again, I was like, oh, home. I, I said that word out loud, which someone randomly on a train, you know, just saying the word home. It's like, <laughs> what London, would you, you do? Got some looks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Especially in East London, right? <laughs> um, We're always on our wits, that's why. Literally. Always, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just, I, I just found it to be home. Because mm. I really, really enjoyed it when I was here for uni. But I also had this blank canvas with it. And I said, right, I've moved away, back home, and really had that time to reevaluate. So I don't see it as a negative time moving home. I see it as more of a, it was inevitable that I was going to move out of where I was. And I think for me, I had to make that quick decision. Sometimes quick decisions are bad and sometimes they're good. And I think in some ways it was a very, very quick change, you know, in terms of within a week I was moved, which shocked a lot of people. But I also think I had a lot of support just from family in terms of go out and get it, go out mm. and do it if you want to do it. Mm. And that change was so sudden. But I think I'm quite adaptable. Right. Um, I think I've got that kind of adaptable strength to me where I can just kind of fit into any situation. When you secured that new housing and your current place where you live in Tottenham in North London, how did that feel? Was it a massive relief more than anything, not having to live in a bougie hostel week to week? So I was in that hostel for about three months, finishing off my master's, happened until about September, October time. Then I moved house again to Stratford where I was kind of working, that kind of area. And then I moved out of there because it was just extremely toxic and I didn't feel as if I could I could live in a place where people were you know it it, it was a lovely house it was lovely room cheap which is always a bonus <laughs> on agency salary guys you know <laughs> but I was scared walking through the door I wouldn't cook I would go up to my room I would eat out every day you know because it was almost as if I couldn't enjoy the living room space because people were working in there still from home and there was a burden over my head where I was going out doing all these things and all my housemates weren't. I got blamed for going out and doing things and I felt incredibly guilty saying, oh yeah, I'm going out with my mates, you know, I, I invited them You have them a life, out. you live your life, people yeah, shouldn't care. Like... Exactly, and I think, you know, I would be constantly out doing things and it just became toxic where I would be scared to go into the kitchen. But in oh. order to use the bathroom, you had to walk through the living room, which I would have to face people because... It's just eggshells, I'm hearing. Just yeah. constant treading on eggshells. Yeah, shells, and yeah. it was toxic. And I don't use that word lightly, but it was. And I had enough of that. I was then fortunate enough to go to work to Crete and do some work over there with a new job, which I managed to get as a media support in a college, which I absolutely adore. I really, really enjoyed that experience. But whilst I was in Crete, I was physically scared to go back. I dreaded going back to that house. So I messaged around a few people. One of my friends was moving out of somewhere, albeit in Edgeware, on the other side of where I was working in Walthamstow. But I just decided, look, I'm going to move into this place and lodge for three months just to get out of that situation because I didn't want to be in that situation. So when I was in Edgeware for a while, it was great. You know, it was, well, it was somewhere safe. It was safe away from toxicity toxicity is that that's a word, a word. yeah yeah yes. keep going yes. <laughs> and so i got out of that toxic kind of environment i don't think it was three months i think it was about two two and a half in the end but just recently last month i moved to tottenham because i decided look it's a great area i've got friends here it's also affordable and i've got a garden amazing yeah before we move on you've had three jobs in the last year you've moved four times as you've now said so despite the stress has it given you anything positive from the chaos? Like you said, adaptability or something else? I think being someone who 
likes change, which I think with a lot of my diagnoses and things is quite a anomaly. Mm. I, guess, I, I guess it's one of those things which... That's how we're different because I don't like change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or well, I, I saw it as almost like stepping stones leading to a better place. So sometimes, sometimes you have to go through the low moments in order to get those high moments. And it wasn't a linear process, but I knew that I would just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and working through it in order to get there. I think the change did make me reevaluate things and be like, actually, I do need to put myself first because I was constantly having to prove myself in these different either career choices or, you know, to family, not so much to friends, but I was having to prove myself in terms of, oh, okay, I'm back to square one in this place. But it did give me that ability to reinvent myself and to start blank. Whereas now I've signed for a year contract, so I'm somewhere which I know is hopefully going to be a rolling one. You know, I can live for the next few years. I'm stable. And I think... You don't need a blank canvas every time. Yeah, I don't need a blank canvas. And also I feel comfortable. I'm the most comfortable I've ever been with that. Being like, yeah, this is adulting. Mm. Now I I, I can actually start to develop things without quote-unquote living out of a suitcase because Mm. that was what I was doing I think the change has been good do you realize as you're saying this how much you've grown because when I spoke to you first the teenage Claudia wouldn't be having this mindset I don't think so I think the teenage Claudia was very sick Mm. in terms of not just kind of the mental health and the kind of things which I was going through and the trauma and things, but... Her potential. Yeah, I think now I'm seeing it as, yes, she needed some help back then, but now she's able to help other people through what they're going through, which, I mean, I was doing already, but I wasn't taking my own advice. And I think sometimes drastic moments have to happen in your life in order for these things you don't want it but they'd always do yeah yeah yeah. and i'm like hang on a minute hang on a minute this isn't this isn't right but things just feel right things just feel right and i'm content with that for now things are never going to be perfect there's always that almost self-resentment in a way with that but i'm constantly discovering new parts of myself and through that I guess my abilities and my adaptability to my abilities are changing so I'm able to pick out oh okay well that didn't work but let's not discard it let's see that as a learning curve and an opportunity to build up those bricks another interesting thing I want to briefly cover mate is your decision to stop sobriety after two years now this isn't a negative relapse sort of question but it coincided with your decision to stop medication as well. So tell me about the thought process behind both these decisions. So I think for me, you know, I wasn't a big drinker, but it was certainly affecting my ability to process things and almost as if it was like another coping mechanism I was using. So I came off of it for two years, you know. I say came off of it, but I just made the decision to stop drinking. Also, I was at home at the time during COVID, so there was I no... didn't drink during COVID anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so... yeah. There was no way of, you know, it, it, it was... To me, it just felt as if I was restricting myself. And I guess through that restriction, I found myself a lot more able to cope with things and not seeing things as so black and white in terms of I can't go out and enjoy myself if I don't do X, Y, Z. I can enjoy myself without alcohol but then I also can when I'm around other people 
So was the autism playing in, 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 into it a little yeah. bit? Yeah. 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 I, I think also a lot of the stereotypes in terms of autism as well about, oh, okay, you can't go out. You can't sit there with a glass of wine. You know, you have to be this. You have to sit there with an orange squash, which I'm not slating orange squash. Love orange squash. But there's almost that childlike mentality and stereotypes. Right. So you were placing limitations on yourself based on the limitations people thought you had. Yes, exactly. Got it in one. And I think because I was limiting myself in terms of what I knew I could do, Mm -hmm. it wasn't an attention thing. I think a lot of the time the media can represent things in terms of, oh, okay, you're off of medication, which I took myself off of because it was not helping me. Mm -hmm. And I spoke to various people before coming off of it. I did it all safely within, you know, I I did it all safely within my capacity. I was only on the very low dosage anyway. Mm -hmm. So I guess that coincided with the alcohol as well. Well, it was very sensible for you not to drink whilst you're on a medication, even if it yeah. was a low dosage, to be honest. Yeah. Also, part of a fibro diagnosis and the symptoms, you know, it can flare up through alcohol. But then, I guess, it was almost that placebo effect as well. I was, oh, placed, okay. I was almost becoming a placebo myself to the things. So, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, yeah, in a way. So, I was limiting my abilities based on what other people thought I could do. Have you heard the phrase bigotry of low expectations? No. So it's saying something along the lines of someone can't do something based on a stereotype that they have about a particular group. Mm. So it sounds like you almost internalised that and you had to work your way out of it and say, actually, people with autism can do anything they want. Yeah, yeah. I also think that completing a master's degree as well like so i've got three degrees at the age of 24 i've got five years of experience in this but i've also got these five ten diagnoses of various things how do those two things align it's a almost skittles like list. it's a skittles list of diagnoses yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and i think i was limiting my abilities based on these things and i was a hypocrite in some ways with that and i will hold my hands up and say that you know i was putting myself in positions because of certain things which had happened, I think. I'm hearing you grow as I speak to you, Claudia. Yeah, yeah. Do you hear yourself? I don't think I hear myself enough. Mm. I think I can give advice, but I don't take it. And I think I am learning to do that. And I think it's great that there are opportunities like this for me to also grow, you know, and mm. help Why did you not take it that. before? I think because I was scared that my advice would trigger me due to past traumas Um, unpack that for me so i think because i've always perceived myself as this sick kid with all of these diagnoses i've never seen the real claudia through them i've always you know so the prison the prison was sick claudia yeah it was and she can't do anything she can't do anything right or you know constantly moving around and doing things without actually looking at what i had done and I guess this is one of the things I need to do, which I haven't done for a while, is write down a list of things I have actually done. And actually... Might be a long list, mate. Yeah, I'm thinking it's going to be like Santa Claus's naughty list. Don't watch the Futurama episode with Santa. That's a different type of Santa. <laughs> it'll be like a lot of things that I previously have done also haven't worked. And I think it's okay to admit that and say yes. But how we learn from them. Yeah, exactly. I think we as humans we see the world from such a linear perspective we need to see it both longitude and latitude so we need to kind of keep progressing but there's different points which you can kind of ebb and flow between do you know what that's called 
Life. <laughs> it is called life. It is called life. Game of life. Yeah. Before we explore how you've maybe evolved or developed or explored, as I should repeat myself, your relationship with your sexuality and identity, Claudia, something which again surprised me given our last conversation is that you've taken the decision to re-engage with your faith. Now, the listeners who haven't listened to your first episode, you were bullied in a Catholic secondary school, so you had a very, let's say, mixed relationship, I guess, with your faith, with God, with a faith community. So why did you make this decision? I think trauma affects different people in different ways, and Mm. I think a lot of the time I was very, very scared. Also, my head being very scientific and theoretical, I was kind of questioning things anyway since a young age and no one could really answer questions for me. I also think it was partly moving to London as well where I could kind of discover different groups of people and meet others who also maybe had the same questions as I did. I'd never been very into faith, but I think there was always those questions and I think through that I thought, well, I'm in London now, this is a blank canvas. Again, I guess... That was a positive blank canvas for me because I could go into this whole kind of exploration of faith with no predispositions as to what it was like. Mm. You know, um, you weren't being indoctrinated, just being in a setting which was faith, but you were exploring yeah. it on your own and with your own cognitions, with your own independence. Yeah, and I think because I had a better understanding of who I was as well in terms of I had made this decision, it wasn't being forced upon me in terms of, you know, being scared because of my identity for various kind of ways you know there's a lot of things which I found useful in terms of exploring faith you know I've explored other faiths as well Mm -hmm. I think living in East London has been such a eye-opener in terms of different diversities and different cultures and different religions and different attitudes to religion and I think everyone is spiritual in some way shape or form it's just like it's just finding what works for you Mm -hmm. I think and I think it's about being extremely tolerant as well. And I embrace change and I love diversity. And Mm. I think for me, reigniting that faith and it's enabled me to start asking those questions in a not only methodical way, but in a theoretical way. So how did you detach your faith when you were in secondary school from the trauma? And how did you healthily reattach it now? So I didn't really have a faith in the secondary school. I went to the school because it was, you know, it was the closest school to me and I was being bullied at other schools and this felt as if, oh, okay, it was almost like a nobody knew me school or very, very little, again, blank canvas um, comes into play. Oh, wow. I've just realised that. It's a very running theme. Yeah, Mm. I've just realised that was such a blank canvas. So I never thought that I had any kind of faith, but I had fears and doubts and I think I was doubting that there would be some kind of a god because I had xyz again the why me kind of thing but also why things were happening in the world you know and all these kind of different debates which were happening I was so fixated on answering questions to get answers instead of actually exploring those questions and unpacking what they meant for me almost having like a personal approach instead of just being scared to ask any kind of questions and scared to stand out for what I believed in and actually challenge things, but challenge them in a healthy way. Mm. And then with your relationship with God then, 
how has that been? Did it take a while to develop? Did you feel like he had abandoned you when you were in that trauma state? Were you angry at him for the experiences you went through? Tell me about this exploration. I think for me kind of being very new to faith as well, like I'm still kind of growing in it as we all are, you know, growing in life. I think the trauma associated with it was one of those things which I wasn't angry, but I was able to take a theoretical look at how things happen. So I wasn't playing a blame game with God. I was almost like, oh, okay, well, maybe this is for a purpose and this is for a reason, you know. There was more anger towards myself for not understanding things before than actually understanding the challenges and the trials and things. Not saying that trials directly come from God, but I think different things happen for different reasons. So things moving through him or things moving through a faith or things working through him or him working through them to get to you. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that I hit rock bottom, but relapses and things happen and they still do, you know. And that's fine. Um, And that's what happens in life. Yeah, and I think... But it's how we bounce back. Exactly. And I always think that God's almost been that sounding board for that bounce back, almost as if, Again, it takes it away from me and it puts it on, not puts it on someone else, but it almost feels as if, oh, okay, even if there's this invisible God figure, you know, it's like I can vent to them. They kind of, you know, vent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nice plug, mate. Yeah, but I can kind of just be open to things and it's not condemning me which I think I felt the trauma of before. I'm understanding that for me personally, the faith and the relationship I have is not a condemning one. It's more of a freeing one because I'm able to freely explore and actually have a good time Mm. and actually do life without feeling like I have to succeed in every area which I turn my hands to. Mm. It sounds like the move to a more faith-based life has come alongside a form of personal responsibility or ownership of your mental health. Would that be a fair assessment? I think so. I think so. Because I think, you know, mental health is one of those things which we all have. We all have a mental health. Some people experience things in different ways. But alongside that, we all have some kind of faith and spirituality in something, you know, whether or not that be a god or an object or something, you know. Karma, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, we all have some kind of core belief system and values which are influenced by certain things. And I think for me, it was almost that mindset shift which I needed to experience in terms of, yes, I have a mental health yes I have a physical health but also I have a spiritual health and those three things for me I think make me who I am and now I've kind of become more stable in my mental health I understand my physical health now it's time to start looking into this chapter and how they intertwine and interconnect so they're working in tandem now yeah I think so and Mm. I think because yeah I am still so new to it you know I'm discovering new things every day and that Actually, I think what I'm learning about the community I hang out with in my kind of church is that mental health is a very real thing. And if you need the support, go get it. Yeah. I think I've found a community which is very, very accepting of that. Mm. Um, How did you go about finding it? How did you go about finding the right 
church for you, the right community? What did you need to hear or read or know that you would feel safe? You would be able to express your faith properly and be yourself. So it was actually a random Instagram message, which I got from the church, not doing a plug here, but Instagram (laughs) does work. Yeah, You know, it does work. And it was just when I moved to London, three days later, I just rocked up at this place, you know, not knowing anything about it. Just thought, oh, okay, let's go along. And the first topic they were doing was about mental health. Blank canvas I'm hearing again. It was a blank canvas, yeah. yeah. But I think they were just open and it wasn't boring. There were people who were in the same position as me. I think they created this very warm environment where everybody was welcome. And it wasn't a condemning environment, which I think sometimes when you walk into somewhere, wherever that be for the first time, you feel pressure. I guess it, it reminded me of the time when you did the vent thing for the mm-hmm. first time. You know, it was an open space which everyone could be themselves in and explore questions and community together and almost building those little micro communities within that Mm. so there are a lot of creative people in there as well you know a lot of artists and directors and filmmakers and i found kind of common interest with them got chatting to them and then through that i kind of had a chat with the pastors about it and you know started to question things but i think because i have always been very community focused and doing things with people i was able to see that they provided me and still provide me with this space which I can freely question things. You know, I go along to a group in which we talk about these big topics and we're able to respect different beliefs within that. It's a shame that the way that you're saying that, it sounds like some weird thing. Oh, healthy discussion and debate in church groups. Like, it's what it should be. And no one should be judged and people should be able to ask difficult questions and uncomfortable questions and what have you. Yeah, I think that's one of the things which I like about this community in general is the fact which, well, their slogan is building authentic community together. And I think whatever community you're in, whether or not that be a faith group, a social group, a mental health group, you know, we're all about building community in terms of finding people who you can be yourself around, but also, yes, have healthy debates and be able to tolerate different perspectives and also life experiences. Of course. And, you know... If I need people, they have my back, which, you know, I had a very, very low moment back in December, um, just trauma and relapses and all of that kind of stuff. And they were there for me, you know. We went and we grabbed a coffee and a pizza and we sat down and, you know, they helped me to see things, but also I'm able to help them. So Mm. I actively volunteer with them. I volunteer at a homeless drop-in service. I do the production stuff for them, which I love. And these might be people with very different political beliefs to you as well, Claudia, yes. but they're supporting you because you have that community. And I think, you yeah. know, I'm not of faith anymore. I went to two faith schools. I do consider myself spiritual in a sense that I like to believe that my actions in this life will lead to whatever yeah. my consciousness goes to. I don't yeah. like to believe that I'm worm food, but yeah. that might be a pipe dream. But that is what, in essence, I think the great side of faith should be about, right? Yeah, and I think it is about growing in that no one has all the answers no one has all the answers it's like i remember seeing this photo of politicians all sat around a table in the middle of the water i don't know if you've seen it i've not seen it no, no oh okay so they're all looking at the world from like a different angle and who's to say what way is right and they all have different beliefs within the same kind of micro community slash chasm thing mm. and i think for the most part we're all just trying to do life in the best way we can 
And for me right now, that is being in this community with people, meeting up, having social groups with them, having having opportunities to live a life exploring God as well through mm. that. How you see these little things. And actually now I look back at things and I'm like, yeah, maybe that was to lead me to this point where I can actually realise certain things. Has it given you a new lease of life? I think it has. I think it has. I think before I was very, despite being an extrovert, I was very closed off to things. Because I can see the change in you from when we first met. Yeah, yeah. I guess for me, I don't, I, I don't see it until I look back on things. Of course, um, it's easy. Hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, you know, again, it's longitude and latitude. It's never going to be plain sailing, but then why would it be plain sailing anyway? You know, if we all have different traumas and different expectations of life why aren't we more open to the fact which questioning things isn't a bad thing and we shouldn't Mm. be damned for questioning things there's a poster on my flat which listeners can't see and it's a band one of my favorite bands called neck deep and it's a poster of when i went to see them and they have got a song called smooth seas don't make good sailors and that's Mm. what i thought of as you were saying that that's nice i want to move on now to the last two topics I've got before we finish and reflect. And the first is the non-binary identity, which you were previously identifying as. And the listeners will know this has changed slightly because we have been referring to you in she, her pronouns. Mm -hmm. So why did you make this decision? What's happened here since we last chat? I think it goes back to the whole human thing. For me, almost seeing myself as, yes, this is now Claudia. This is who she wants to be and who she actually is. Also, I guess the diagnosis of fibromyalgia because it affects more women. I kind of, in my head, I put two and two together and I did take that very literally. Mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, for me, gender identity and sexuality and things there, they're separate, but they're the same. So there's different kind of areas of things. And I guess in some ways it was another label, which at the time really helped me to deal with things, you know, because I was doing lots of different things. I didn't know who I was, whereas now I have more of a direction in terms of, you know, hopefully career coming up soon. Because, <laughs> you know, crossed, we, we all know what's happening with the job market. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, in terms of career, in terms of direction, in terms of faith, in terms purpose. of... Purpose? Purpose, yeah. I think purpose is one of those things which I, I'm more about helping others achieve their purpose but in that i find my purpose much like this podcast yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i think the potential for me to move away from that barrier Mm -hmm. i'm gonna call it a barrier you know for other people who identify as non-binary it can be an incredibly freeing thing but i think for me at the time it was very freeing but it didn't enable to me to actually explore my femininity and masculinity because you can be a masculine girl you can be a feminine boy yeah yeah and you know i do err on the side of very masculine in terms of the way i present the way i dress the way i you know one of the lads in Mm -hmm. my kind of community Mm -hmm. but that also doesn't mean that i don't experience femininity too of course doesn't mean you can't go and chat with with a group of girls either yeah yeah i've learned a lot about gender boundaries i think in terms of not so much boundaries, but the fact which it doesn't matter. You know, it really does not matter to me. If you're a nice human, you're a nice human. <laughs> That's at the end of the day. And I think we can all agree with that in some ways that, you know, it doesn't matter 
who you are, what you are, where you come from, what you believe in, what you don't believe in, you matter for for you. Exactly. You know? So would it be fair to say that it was a coping strategy, but it also was restrictive because it was based on a stereotype? I do think the stereotypes did play a massive, massive role with it. I think a lot of the time the media presents stereotypes as well. We of see, course. We see only one image of a person. We don't see... A bit like with autism, a bit like with mental health, you know, a bit like with faith. We see one stereotype and we all have stereotypes ingrained into us. It's almost like this unconscious bias we have. And I think I felt as if I had to be that way because that was what other people were expecting. And they were the expectations of that. You know, you had to be bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. In a lot order of people to... are stupid. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah, a lot of people are. People, lot... people said to me in uni, they thought I was, this is obviously very few people and most people were very nice to me in uni but from a very ignorant but weird place i had a couple of people who said to me oh i thought you were gay because you wore skinny jeans i'll just let that marinade in your head so the stereotypes <sighs> that people have are very thick yep and i think it affected me at the time because i was more confused i was like why because i wore skinny jeans would you think that that's mm. quite homophobic to actually think in your head yeah but I feel like we're almost going backwards a little bit and we need to get to where you're thinking now as to how we move forwards. I think COVID has brought on a lot as well. I think it's made people reevaluate certain stereotypes and, you know, what it means to be of a differing gender identity, you know, and actually question, question our sexuality and question our core values. And I've learned not to get annoyed at people for that you know especially the older generation who's still a, a lot of people are very open but i think a lot of the time there is still stigma around things just because of the way people are being brought up and the environmental That's how factors. they were brought up yeah. yeah yeah so i think i've developed more of an understanding around that partly through my grandparents partly through you know just through faith as well you know how mm -hmm. there's different different experiences but that doesn't mean we love anyone any less mm. it just means that and we can't learn from them either no exactly and I think, yes, people are stupid and that it is I'm being okay. facetious in that. I don't think actually loads of people are stupid, <laughs> but it's more people are, let's say, some are ignorant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some ways, a lot like mental health, we pick and choose. We do pick and choose and almost as if we're symptomising certain sexualities and symptomising certain... Again, putting people in boxes. Yeah, it is. It's a tick, a tick box culture. Mm. And... Again, back to a blank canvas. I, I feel as if this is like a metaphor for my <laughs> life right now, a blank canvas. We all have canvases. We can all mix them up in different ways, you know. And who's to say what art is? Exactly. With that. And just talking about labels, you know, you said to me off air that non-binary people have been around for decades. But playing devil's advocate here, gender non-conforming people have been around for decades, or gender stereotype non-conforming people, I should say. You know, I'll point to famous examples. Prince, Grace Jones, who I've seen live, was amazing. David Bowie. But they were all still firmly men and women and male and female. And I'm pretty sure Grace Jones wouldn't identify as non-binary if you spoke to her. She'd probably give you a slap in the face if you tried to put a <laughs> label on her like that. So is it a new phenomenon or is it an old one? I mean, first of all, I'd be honoured if Grace Jones even slapped me. That would be that would be an that would be an honour. I wouldn't wash my face if uh, uh. picture it. But I think this is a very good question, mm. and one which I think I need to ruminate on as well mm. um, in my own life. But I, 
I think society has a lot of expectations on people. Of course. And through those expectations, I mean, it's in the word, expect. You expect certain things to happen. Or of someone. Yeah. Why don't we see it instead of expectations as acceptations? So we can actually accept these expectations and, you know, how people identify is up to them in terms of their authenticity and i think authenticity within the media such as you know grace jones and prince and things rest in peace prince yeah cried when he died i did as well yeah i remember where i was when prince died Uh, you can see on my bookshelf music shelf if you look very closely if you can find it there's about 10 prince albums on there so that's my love of prince you've got me looking now look yeah (laughs) If you go to the if you go to the third the third section the listeners will be absolutely confused at this point. So if you go to the third shelf and you go down and you'll see like as it goes O's and P's, you should be able to see all the Prince albums. So I think I've got nine or eight. I'm pretty sure. Wow. Dirty mind. Dirty mind is mine. We'll do it. We'll do a deep dive we after pod. <laughs> yeah. So going back to this question, then I'm basing this on a presumption, of course. If you are no longer identifying as non-binary. What or who are you now? Just Claudia? Hmm. I think... I think I'm just Claudia. Mm. I think... I, th- I shouldn't I, even put a just there, by the way. Or maybe mm, I should change the tone of how I say the just. Mm, I Claudia. Think, yeah. I actually like the just Claudia because just almost is like a preposition to things can be changing, you know, things can... Again, blank canvas. I feel as if I say this all the time, but it's going to be on my Instagram profile soon. Blank canvas. Link in bio, blank canvas, yeah. (laughs) But, oh, that's giving me an idea. Okay, that's giving me an idea for the future. We'll talk about it post-pod. Talk about it post-pod. I think I do see myself as a woman. I see myself as a female, but with masculine and feminine traits. Of course. That that's totally okay. And Mm -hmm. I'm in a place where right now i can explore that and just be just be just be just and be also Claudia. yeah also as well we, there are stereotypes of course but what is masculine what is feminine yeah yeah that is very true and i think no one could give a no one can give because no one is 100 percent masculine and no one is 100 percent feminine yeah really that is very true we all have different parts of us and different experiences so exactly, you know mate. Just be. It is what just it is. Be. It is what yeah. it is. <laughs> I don't. I can't believe I've just quoted a very often used phrase on Love Island. But there we go. <laughs> Playing into this exploration of gender has been your exploration of your sexuality as well, Claudia. So previously in the first episode, you described yourself as asexual. So has this changed too? I think, alongside the non-binary identity and the asexual identity. I see myself as open, but still asexual. So Mm -hmm. asexual, for me, it's more in terms of, you know, before I'd be repulsed by any kind of sex or any talk about it. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I'm more open to the fact which... Most British people are repulsed by talk about sex, by the way. So that's that's not unusual. (laughs) Don't watch Love Island, guys. (laughs) Just leave a Love Island at the door. (laughs) So I I, I think one of the things which I'm coming to terms with is that I don't have to be alone. And again, another label which I was putting on myself and also society was putting on me through certain... I mean, if you've ever watched The Undateables, you get a lot of stereotypes of out there. And, you know, that there's a lot of things about people with disabilities who can't have relationships or can't have, can't have meaningful relationships, should I say, which can kind of develop into the future. 
I think for me, I'm quite happy being single. I'm not out there looking for any kind of relationship or any kind of emotional connection in that way. However, I think now I'm more open and I'm not scared of the fact of I am able to explore mm. more, you know. And I would rather be in a relationship. <laughs> I would rather be That's in a relationship. <laughs> with, yeah, I would rather be in a relationship with someone platonically and really what, have first? that. Yeah, yeah, first, yeah, have that real deep connection with someone before thinking about anything kind of physical, which I think a lot of people are also in the same boat, which I'm I was going to say, do you know out. what that sounds like again? Healthy sexuality. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I think not limiting myself, but also being very, very open to the fact which if I find someone, great. If I don't, say la vie, I've got my community of people. As long as I'm around people in some way, shape or form. You'll be okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll be okay. I know that I'll be okay. Exactly. I know I'll be okay. Not going on a stereotype as well, or a trope, which I sometimes get told, but what you've just said all there is often when you end up finding something, when you're mm. not looking for it. So we'll see what the future holds. On the definition then, you obviously you've said you're, you're open, but you're still classing yourself in mm. that asexual bracket. So... What does the future hold? Do you think you could move to a stage where you could say, I'm bisexual now? Or could you move to a stage where you might think you might identify or say you are a lesbian or or heterosexual? Mm. Like, wh- what do you think will happen and what would you want to happen? I would still say asexual, but I'd okay. say open asexual. Okay. So I think I am more attracted to someone's personality. Right. And they're values and their morals and their interests than the actual kind of gender and what they kind of identify as however i do find myself having more of an attraction to men Mm -hmm. but i again i'm not one to put in some ways i'm not one to put myself in that tick box anymore Mm -hmm. i guess i'm just there's no strict ratio shall we say yeah yeah yeah, there's no ratio there there's no kind of oh okay 60 percent this 40 percent that or whatever it's the person much, you see. Yeah, much is the same with femininity and masculinity. Mm-hmm. There's no, again, sliding scale. It's what you feel. Yeah, but I think I'm still classing as kind of the asexual side, okay. um, but more of a romantic asexual sure. rather than a closed off, repulsed yes. kind of, yeah. a repulsive. I guess I'm a lot more open. Sure. Maybe if we do a part three, that might change. So who knows, mate? Who, who knows? knows? I want to finish before we reflect by talking again about something that's come up a lot in the podcast and it's your autism diagnosis and and how you've freed yourself perhaps from the expectations people have placed on you because of it. So how have you increased your self-awareness about it and managed the challenges? Because there are obviously challenges and I think it's actually quite wrong to discount the challenges in a conversation like this. But how have you also celebrated internally and externally the positives it's given you? I think for me, a lot of the positives have been through my creativity and actually embracing the fact which I can turn my hand to anything. Jack of all trades, master of none. Which... Or master of all. Or master of all. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. You're not getting quite. there. You've got three uh, degrees. I've, I've, got, I've, I've got the masters in inclusive arts practice. Literally, you are a Literally. master. Sorry. <laughs> masters of inclusive arts practice. But I think that was one of the turning points for me was actually on that master's degree. So I did my teaching degree and kind of, I've always been a breaker of boundaries, a smasher of stigmas, you know, 
again like this podcast thing yeah yeah and i really feel the need for active representation which is why i'm in the whole kind of education sector and the creative education sector especially in terms of special educational needs but now i'm not seeing it as special educational needs because if we're labeling people as special in some way the phrase it, can become it, it, something it can, else. Yeah, yeah, it can manifest itself into something negative or positive. And I guess depending on where you stand with your own mental health as well, and in terms of your own your own educational experiences, you can see the flip side. Whether you other someone or whether you embrace them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think through my educational experiences and actually being a teacher with autism, you do see what these students are going through but you see it in terms of how some stereotypes are very, very prevalent. And, well, I shouldn't say stereotypes, I'd say symptoms. And the stereotypes of those symptoms. So there are a lot of things which I still do, such as stimming. For anyone who doesn't know what stimming is, it's like a, a self-regulation tool. Which... Like a tick, but in a more yeah. soothing way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's also a lot of people have anxiety, kind of um, self-stim as well. So it's not self-harm for you? No, okay, it's not well, self-harm for me. Yeah, yeah, it's not self-harm for me. So it's not like nail biting or a skin rub where you end up giving no, yourself damage? Okay, no, right. for me it has been in the past, but I've kind of learned healthy coping strategies with that. So for me, always holding something in my hands, Okay. Um, which is quite, you know... Well, with, I, the, with the no sobriety, I, that I normally really, might be a pint now. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to be careful with that. Certainly what, I mean, coffee, yes. Water, yes. <laughs> yeah, always coffee, mate. <laughs> but... Um, I always like to keep busy. It's kind of another self-regulation tool. But then I guess I don't walk up to someone and say, hi, my name's Claudia. I'm autistic. I don't do that, which I think in the past I have done. Okay. Because, because I wanted to set certain expectations. Did you feel anxiety so about understand. getting it out, getting it out of the way early sort of thing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that people can swipe left or swipe right in right. terms of whether or not they wanted to form a connection with me in whatever kind of scenario I was in whereas now I'm seeing that yes it's a part of me but it isn't it is not all of me doesn't define you it, it is yeah. but it's shaped you yeah yeah it's certainly shaped me and it shaped it shaped my perspective because they've just recently scrapped the label of high functioning autism now no they've scrapped the Asperger's apologies. right why have they done that so I think they've done that because of a lot of the stereotypes of the past and a lot of the things which happened in terms of the guy who did Asperger's testing on children and all I these see. kind of okay. inhumane kind of methods which were happening. That was back in, I think, World War Two times. Right. I, I need to do more research into it personally. So was the public perception, I guess, that there was the phrase autism and then there was Asperger's, which people looked at as like a substitute term or a lesser like severity yeah. term but then it's maybe kind of confused people as yeah. well yeah. yeah and i think so asperger's formerly known as high functioning autism you then have that high functioning part which then denotes the fact which there must be a low functioning part which almost discounts the low functioning part and sees that as oh you can't do anything because you are low functioning xyz so would that be people who have got autism that's on the spectrum something that makes them mute or non-speaking in, in, in another phrase or something else which would be in symptoms presented quite severe would that be fair to say yeah so i mean in terms of a high functioning high functioning means that 
you're very astute and very, very aware of the different symptoms which you have. And okay. you're kind of... Um, so it's a high self-awareness, is that correct? Yeah, and, you know, in some ways, a savant, if you've heard about savantism, or, like, your special interests denote what you do in your life, whereas a lot of the time with the quote-unquote low-functioning side, there isn't really that kind of symptom or that right. kind of element to it. It's more in terms of the independence. Okay, I, yeah. I've, this yeah, is just what to I've been told. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's more as if how independent are you and also how how do you know that what you're saying is correct in some kind of social cognition? It's more kind of a cognitive kind of reasoning skills. Or maybe what support do you need and how much support do you need to get independent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is now why I love the fact which they've just called it autism spectrum condition. And there are different symptoms, different elements, and you're not low functioning, you're not high functioning. Because I think the perception with high functioning, which I found, was the fact which I need to do everything all at once because... I am able to cope, cope in, in air, quotes. In air yeah. quotes, which simply isn't the case. And I guess for me, I'm in a fortunate position where I can say I'm now able to help people who also have autism, autistic people, using a strengths-based approach. So we look at what people can do in terms of what they can't do. And we use those opportunities for what they can't do in order to impact what they can do. Mm. So it's all about the support we can provide whilst also supporting ourselves. If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. If you've met one person with depression, you've met one person with depression, anxiety, faith, you know, and any societal norm is out the window in terms of stereotypes. When you help these kids, do you see yourself in some of them? I do. Where you were, perhaps? I do. And, you know, I, I see this little Claudia who she didn't know that she had autism. Again, referring to myself in third person because <laughs> I'm not in that place that I was. But also having a diagnosis at the age of 19, 20, you know, gives you, I think, for me, it kind of made a lot of the questions make sense, which I think a lot of the students who I have kind of helped in my experience... They already have diagnoses, so they're very kind of confirmed on what they can do and what they can't do because it's been ingrained into them. Whereas I go in there and I actually say to them, look, I'm also autistic and I present that to them. Not in the first kind of way, you know, like, oh, hi, I'm Claudia. I'm going to be your support. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, doing this. But I kind of reveal it to them through just kind of a more pastoral side. So mm-hmm. I'm like look, I've done this, you can do this as well. Not saying that everybody with autism can do everything because we're all human, we Mm -hmm. all can't do, you know, we all do different things. But I try and instill in them the fact which do not let a condition limit you. You set your own, yeah, you're more than it, but you're also, you can also use it to your strengths. So you can be an activist, you can be a... Everyone you can, can be a teacher. Yeah, you can be a teacher. And I think, for me, it's having to unlearn certain things in order to relearn them. Mm. So unlearning my own stereotypes, because I'm still biased, you know. We, we all still have stereotypes which play off in our heads and symptoms and stigmas and things, whatever that may kind of be. But I think because I have been able to take my creative skills and take a proactive approach to helping students. I'm going to say they feel inspired because a few of them, because a few of them do. 
And, you know, you look back and you think, in 10 years' time, where are they going to be? And I think... And what role have you played in it? Yeah, and, you know, it only takes a max to start a fire. So that small impact can really, really develop and grow over time. Mm. When you tell them, I've done this, or I do this, but I used to not be able to do this, what is their reaction? Are they shocked? Are they surprised? Are they filled with excitement that they have the potential to do it too? I think because I'm quite relatable in terms of, because I've done lots of different kind of careers and I've done lots of different experience, you know, in different areas from theatre to journalism to teaching to backstage stuff to everything. A, 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 lot of diff- <laughs> a lot of different things within kind of creative education. I think in some ways they think, wow, you've done so much. Why are you here? Why aren't you famous or something? A lot of them say, <laughs> one of them said to me, you know, like, are you famous or something? And I'm like, no, because that's not my end goal. Because their world is still in that maybe perhaps limited space of you've yeah. done so much. Wow, you... You've done so much a million times more than me. Yeah. You must be X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say to them, that's not my role. My role is to help you become that. And I think their immediate reaction to that is like, but that means that I can never get famous, you know? <laughs> and that means that I can never, you know, because a lot of them in the creative world want to be the next big shot, yeah. you know, in music or film or whatever kind of creative industry you know we're always all looking for some kind of recognition but my recognition comes through them realizing their potential and it's really nice to see that they actually take stuff on board and they also don't see the disability they don't see they see their ability yeah they see their ability and they literally learn to diss their ability, their, their disability mm. through, you know, a strengths-based positive behaviour management approach. If you see, and again, this goes back to me and how I felt, if you see yourself as sick, you're going to think that you are. But if you see yourself as capable, it's all about that mindset shift. If you see yourself as capable, you are capable. But why don't we stop seeing it as capable but copable? we're able to use those coping strategies in order to help ourselves to be more able. And those coping strategies can come from a manner of different things. Could be through faith, could be through community, could be through a hobby, could be therapy, could be medication, which I'm not disputing because it absolutely has an impact for each, you know, depending on, you know, each individual person and experiences. So looking back on that, it's really positive to see that impact coming out through those students. Let's reflect then on this continued mental health journey, pal. You've now got stable housing. You've got more friends. You've got a new community. You feel more at peace with yourself than you ever have. And I can certainly attest to that through speaking to you for the last hour or so. Who is the Claudia we meet now? Still in discovery, I think. I think I'm still definitely in a discovery mode, but... I'm learning to acknowledge that I can't do everything at once and that it is okay to just be stable and to just be comfortable. Yes, I have relapse moments. Yes, I still struggle with things and I'm considering going back into therapy, you know, for certain things. But I think because I am more stable in terms of where I'm living and being in a community of people who I do actually care enough to support me in my development and I support them... 
Claudia's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. And it's great to see actually myself coming and doing things like this again and seeing how much I have changed. And in two years time again, what's it going to be like? So I'm extremely looking forward to the future in growing in my abilities and just doing life, I think, and having fun. You know, life isn't all about, you know, work, work, work. It's yes, work, obviously. But I think if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And I've kind of placed that mentality on myself now where, yes, I still have, you know, disabilities and health scares. Who knows if I'll be in a wheelchair in five years time? Who who knows? Who knows if next year, you know, I'll be not living in London or, you know, moved eight times. But I think for me, I'm going to say that I'm proud of myself for coming to this stage in my life where I'm able to really experience just experience London, experience being around my friends and not see myself as that sick Claudia anymore. Claudia, this has been, I think, one of my favourite ever interviews. I got a little bit emotional actually hearing you answer that last question. It has been an absolute pleasure. It's been a privilege. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming back on the Just Checking In podcast, mate. Thank you so much. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to my pal Claudia for coming back on the podcast, sharing part two of her mental health journey and for checking in with me. There might be a couple more returning guests in the next month or two, so please do stay tuned for them as well. Thank you to all the vendors who tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media to your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please do consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.